Welcome to the channel tribe. In this session of Fireside Chat by the Test Tribe, we are having Robert Sabaran discussing on navigating the maze of skills, values, and demand in software testing. Hi, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everyone. So today we have uh, Rob Sabarin with us. Uh, he goes by name Rob Sab. And uh, we will be talking with him. And uh, it's a very interesting topic today to talk about uh, on the Fireside Chat, which is based on the book, Crossing the Chasm. So today's is, is Fireside Chat uh, uh, with Rob Soborin, as I mentioned. Uh, he's a president at miberg.com. And today's theme is Maze of Skills, Values, and Demand in Software Testing. And today's session is uh, brought to us by uh, Browser Stack, which is our uh, uh, sponsor for today's event and uh, for the test drive for the conferences and other events. So a big shout out uh, to Browser Stack uh, because of that and because of their sponsorship and because of their support, we are running all these events for the testers through the test drive. So thanks to them. And now I would like to bring Mr. Rob Saborin on the stage, and then we start our fireside chat with him. So uh, welcome, Rob, and thanks once again, and let's start. So I was curious when I was looking into the the, the fireside chat uh, theme and the topics, the first question came to my mind was, what inspired you or triggered the idea of having uh, conversation on this topic and this theme, and especially uh, referring the book Crossing the Chasm by Geoffrey Moore. Would, would you please mm -hmm. uh, enlighten us? Uh, sure. So uh, thank you. And uh, uh, welcome, everybody. I hope uh, people are encouraged to uh, ask questions as we go. So does I make introduce terminology? Uh, assuming that uh, everybody knows it, maybe you're not familiar with some of the terms. Uh, I was um, asked uh, when when invited to the Fireside Chat, what was on my mind? What was something that I was interested in, in discussing or at that particular time? And of course, uh, at that time, really, it was the maze and myriad of, of skills that, that people were asking of testers, especially Frosh, or people in the early few years of their career, uh, what skills were being expected, how people were interpreting that, how people were promoting themselves, how people were trying to learn these skills. And those tool skills, this was a, there's a huge collection of them, but they almost all seem to be represented uh, with, with things that are silly in my view, but very real, the names of tools or the names of technologies. So instead of having a skill saying, I know how to solve this type of problem, the skill will be just written down as, I know how to use Selenium. And, and so I'm looking at this, well, okay, so there's skills that are expressed with names of tools and technologies. And I'm looking at this huge collection of, of skills related to tools and technologies. And it, to, to me, it was like a maze. It was like a, a complicated pattern. And the question that I'm asked so often, uh, and, and I'm, I'm forced to discuss often <laughs> uh, for business reasons, is you know, what tool and what, what should we, we develop? What skills should we develop? What, what is the path? 
to, to guide testers uh, in, to, if you're the manager or if you're the tester, uh, what tools should I learn? Like there's so many of them. And yeah, I can learn tools and you've taught me how to learn tools, Rob, but which one? <laughs> how do I know which way to go? And so so this led me to that the, the subject of the maze of an interconnectedness of skills and tools. And then it occurs to me that somewhere in around the period 1987 to 1997, in that era of my career, um, I was exposed to, uh, for me, a revolutionary concept in, in technology and how technology could be discussed. And it was the market segmentation models presented by a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Moore, who wrote a book on the subject called Crossing the Chasm. And this book, uh, for me, it changed my whole like view of tools and technologies and learning and evolution, because it occurred to me that when a new tool comes into the market, people are actively promoting it or selling it or, or directing it, like communities of practice directing it towards certain uses, towards certain benefits. And Jeffrey Moore gave me a model to discuss how I could name the, the, the market segment that the tool is being promoted to. And this, this of course, um, is a, a marketing book. Uh, I, I don't pretend to be expert in marketing. I am naive beyond belief about that subject, but I love the model. And the model has helped me a lot. And what it, what it does, and I'm not going to try to repeat the book here, but just to give you a sort of quick glance at it, um, high-tech marketing sells products uh, usually to different market segments deliberately. If you check, go to Silicon Valley, you'll see it's very deliberate. Um, at the beginning, when there's a new technology that the market is not familiar with, uh, it's usually promoted very actively to what are called early adopters of technology, innovators, people who are at the beginning of, of market acceptance of a new technology. And the people who want that tool usually have very, very, either very specialized problems to solve or a very cool, uh, like almost like an addiction to, to, to the innovation. <laughs> Like, I want the newest thing. I want the new iPhone because I can do voice on IP. It's not because of anything else. I want that technology. So there's early, early people in the market segmentation are early adopters of technology. And then later in the chain, so there's a whole market segmentation break, broken into, I think, six layers by, by more. But there's early adopters is the beginning. And then you have sort of later adopters so you have innovators early adopters and late late majority adopters and there's a big gap this they call it a chasm this big gap between the early adopters like you can be very successful at taking your tool and technology and selling and promoting it to the early early people like they're gonna love it like wow this is cool but then how do you get it into the majority the early majority how do you get a lot of people to start using this tool and technology so that jump is called uh, crossing the chasm. And that's what Jeffrey Moore talks about. And, and he's trying to teach people how to successfully market products 
so that it can cross the chasm. But for me, I'd say that model is really helpful because if I'm a tester and I'm looking at all of this plethora of different tools and technologies and, and, and I'm looking at them all and, and they could be tools used to help me do my job, to help me solve problems in testing. They could be tools used by the development tech teams to build products, but they could also be tools to, to enable the environment that the product's being run on. So I look at three sections, tools for me to do my job, tools for the, the developers do their job, tools for the end user to do their job. Those are three different sets of tools, each one of them in going through different parts of market segmentation. And what I've learned is unless I have a real keen interest in it, to watch for tools starting to enter the, the early majority. And those are the ones that I say, aha, Maybe it's a good idea for me to take a tutorial on how to use that tool or to read some blog posts about how to use that tool and to get familiar with how the tool might be useful. The early stuff today, for example, if you just, if you just right now go to the big American trade shows on software testing, you will see an incredible number of vendors that are trying to promote um, technologies that use um, uh, AI, elements of um, uh, what they're calling AI. I, I don't necessarily believe that it's, it's AI, but it's certainly machine learning and tools to help do testing. And these, these tools are being marketed not for the whole world, not for the universe to, to take, but it's actually, they're trying to make people jump from these innovators, the early, early people who are already playing with that technology, to jump into oh. the early majority. How can I get this tool you know, so that people really have a benefit from it and use it and promote it actively. And that's that's the jump. When it makes that jump, that's that what sense. I'm going to go start taking courses and how to use that tool and technology. Right, right. Before the jump, it's, it's interesting to be informed about it, but I'm not particularly worried about it for my, my job description or for my career, my, my career mm -hmm. path. So that's just to explain to you why okay. uh, I, I sort of jump on the, the, the model that Jeffrey Moore presents in his book, uh, Crossing the Chasm. Hmm, makes sense. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for answering that. Uh, my next question is, and I was thinking again, because uh, when I was reading this book, and I started this morning, to be very honest, and I could cover only 10 pages. So uh, in the book, it, it talks about the Fed and the trends, right? So anything as a tool or technology come as a fed in the market, right? And it to become a trend, the, the chasm has to be crossed, right? So we, we have to cross it, yeah. So for it to, for, for it to have a um, statistically significant market of people willing to pay, right? Or willing to invest in it, even if it's a free tool, there's a cost <laughs> to, to uh, adopting it. So it, the early adopters, often they don't, care too much about price. You can almost charge any price uh, for, for the early adopter, but an economic benefit that also has to jump in. So it can't just be a technical innovation. It's got to also have some other uh, benefits, some other, some other attributes that they didn't matter at the beginning, but now they, they sort of matter. And it's, it's okay. funny because I see companies get it wrong sometimes. There's at least two tools right now that I'm seeing that people are trying to market to the late majority but actually, it's the early guys who need to be <laughs> sold the tool. So the tool mm -hmm. is being marketed to, to the wrong segment. Uh, it's probably uh, going to take a lot longer for it to get um, the penetration that the vendor is hoping. 
There okay. was a question that came up in the, the chat. I'm not sure if I, yep, I read yep. it right. So let me look into this. Um, uh, let me take one question from Alona Basira, if I pronounce the name correctly. Let me show that question on the stage. Um, so it's about, Robert, can you please elaborate more about the code listeners? I started reading your article and think it's totally me because I'm not a coding person. What an honor. What a, that's such a, such a wonderful uh, question. Unfortunately, it's the wrong subject for today's fireside chat. But um, I, I think we can work our way into this if, if, if you want, uh, Sandeep. Uh, but it's, it's possibly a teeny, teeny bit off topic for, for what we're talking okay. about right now. But mm -hmm. it's definitely... Um, great, thank you. I, I definitely will be happy to elaborate on the subject. Uh, just to give a quick definition to, to the, the people who are not familiar with this article, a code listening is a term I use to, uh, for people in testing uh, who, who I'm trying to encourage to have a skill to learn about technical risks and technical collaboration with other team members with, through the actual source code of a system without necessarily having programming skills. So this is the this is the code listening skills, and I put an article together uh, with um, uh, a colleague of mine uh, recently that was published in Tea Time for Testers. So we can talk about that uh, okay, a little sure. later. Okay, thank you so much. So Alona, uh, if you are here and listening to us, uh, we can cover this question in details with the article that you're reading in some other session. Uh, but I hope uh, you get some ideas. Uh, there's another question, uh, Rob, um, which is about, let me show you. In your opinion, what's the roadmap to learn test automation? It's from Michael Macron. Thank you, Michael, for asking that question. Uh, Michael, so, uh, I'm, I'm trusting Michael's question is, is uh, assuming you're, uh, I'm going to give you a few assumptions here. So I'm assuming that when you say uh, test automation, you have a, a clear view of like a problem you're trying to solve. So I, I am a, a bit of a biased person that way. I don't believe in automation for the sake of automation. I believe in automation as, as a tool to help solve a problem. So, so the beginning is model what the problem, like learn what problems you're trying to solve with it. Um, I think that it's very important to have a general, general purpose computing model like that you understand uh, how, how computers and, and technology work that that model is very important. Once you've got that model, then you will see that there's actually a few key elements to it. So, so the roadmap for me is to create a computing model that you believe in, that you understand. It doesn't have to be detailed, but uh, generally what you have is uh, how do you do processing? How do you do input? How do you do output? How do you, how do you observe things? How do you control things? So input, output, observe, control, process. There are five elements. And when, I, when I'm looking at a technology, a new, a new automation technology, I want to say, how can I do those things, those basic things with, with the new or with the, the, the technology? So I'm talking about adaptation of tools to solve problems. I, I try to break it to very few things that I learned how to do. I'm not afraid of, of these tools. Uh, I've learned so many over the years. I'm sure I can learn other ones in the future. So I'm not intimidated. I don't feel I have to go and take a certification course on using a tool, but I certainly have to know how does this tool control? How does this tool observe? How does this tool process? How does this tool get input and output? 
If I don't understand those five things about the tool, then I'm not going to be able to see how it fits into solving my testing problems. So I try to understand how to do those five type of things to it. Um, I can point you to material because I've done um, stuff on how to learn scripting languages, which has exactly the same model. In terms of automation, if you now break it into different problem spaces, uh, I would say that one of the biggest problems we have in the, the world of software testing is people magically think all automation is regression. So the truth is not all automation is regression and not all regression is automated. <laughs> so if you pick one path, the automated regression testing, then I think it's very important to, to understand the development pipeline <laughs> and to understand what sort of risks that you're exploring. Because automation in that context is usually used to to do lots of what some people might call checking and and to basically help us understand and verify that we didn't accidentally break something and this is cool and this is very important but for me it's a teeny little small part of automation but it's a dominant one in terms of what what people sort of think automation is so if that's the case you've got to learn the pipeline so how does your your, your ci uh, cicd continuous integration continuous deployment whatever you call it pipeline works and where does it fit in and the, the checks that you add, they could be unit tests, they could be story tests, they could be intent tests, whatever it is, uh, I've got to fit the culture of your team. So there's almost like, like, like it almost doesn't matter what the technology is, it matters that it fits into the way you develop software. And, and that's really cool, is you can get a nice dynamic of a team that, know, that works out, collaborates very well, and does fantastic pipelines of, of, of regression testing, uh, even though they're basically indifferent almost about the, the technical use of the tool and you got other guys who are totally dominated by the tool like they're going to say well you have to use selenium or you have to use catalan or you have to use something else and they get really deep into it but but they don't look at how do you convince the programmers to 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 like um, challenge the, the code mm -hmm. at the right time the right mocking and stuff like that so i think that depending on which problem you're solving you got to really get into make sure it fits your workflow make sure that the, the 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 general statement is make sure the punishment fits the crime right make sure <laughs> it's true make sure the punishment fits the crime make sure that we're solving a problem the problem has a benefit to your team and and once there's that benefit if you can feel it and sense it make sure there's feedback the team sees the benefit so that they can then sponsor and encourage you to get a good momentum awesome awesome thank you so much i hope michael you got the answer and i hope well, it was useful eight-hour lecture on the answer. <laughs> I understand. I do have other material, though, that I'm happy to share on these subjects. I, I do a course with the Testing Tribe a couple of times a year on test automation, automated test design and designing test yep, automation, yep, yep. where we dive deep into that question. And it's, right, right. Uh, yep. I've seen that you're doing that deep dive for on a boat. It's team. not trivial. It's, 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 it, I don't want to oversimplify things. Right, right. I, I understand. Thank you. Uh, there's an interesting question, Rob, uh, and I think it was one of the first questions that now came to Q&A section, and uh, allow me to present it to you. Uh, so Gunesh Patel is asking uh, the tools uh, which are not able to cross the chasm are not necessarily bad tools. They might not just have right marketing team right uh how do we help such tools okay so, well first of all i love the fact that you 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 are personifying the tool 
and saying you want to help the tools. So I love that. And, and thank you for having that that mindset. Just not everybody can twist their head and think like that. So it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I, I want to frame that question and just put it on my wall because it's beautiful, beautiful. Um, here, here we are. So yes, I, I'm not judgmental. I'm never going to say a tool is bad or good because it can't cross a chasm. I'm just going to say that a tool is not widely adopted if it doesn't cross the chasm. The model for me is 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 the adaptation of the adopted by community of practitioners. So if I'm making a judgment call of what path of tools do I want to follow, the ones that cross the chasm are the ones I feel compelled to learn about. Uh, there's so many fantastic problems that people are solving. And if you just would, I don't know, like take the marketing department and hide them in a corner somewhere and just take the tool and show show people, here's a case study of how this tool helps solve a problem. I think that, that that their tools with the small market would be fantastic. I would love to treat them like blades of a Swiss Army knife and pick the right blade for the right problem. But the, but the marketing guys, sometimes they get carried away and they say, no, this AI tool has to solve all of your problems forever. Wait a sec. Maybe this AI tool is going to help me generate a fantastic pattern for testing compatibility with old versions. And that's... That, that would be fantastic. But is there any segment called old version compatibility testing tools? No. No one pushes or promotes that. Everyone has to push and promote magic, pixie dust, reduce costs, save times, blah, blah, blah. So I think that you're absolutely right. There are some tools that solve or help you solve a very specific problem, and they're awesome, but unfortunately, they're being marketed as much bigger. I don't want to name names, but let's name a name. Tricentis is guilty of this where they have beautiful tools that are just out of this world fantastic, but they're pushing them to the market that doesn't necessarily need them. <laughs> so, so you get promotion of a tool, which is really great, but to a market that might not be the right market for that tool. And you got to, you know, it's hard to do that. It's That's the hard thing. But I don't want to judge the tools for sure. There are some excellent tools that don't get wide market penetration. There have been for years. It's not new in the testing field. It's been going on for years and years and years. And I just I just hope that we can keep an open mind. If you're if you take a problem centric approach to test automation, when you're when you're trying to learn learn about new tools, think of what problems it might help you solve and then talk to the vendor and see if they can license you or get you maybe a small part of the tool. And I'll give you an example. Uh, IBM makes some of the best software testing tools on the planet Earth. They've been doing it for, for years, longer than anybody else. And IBM has a tool that's part of what is called the rational, uh, IBM rational uh, test suite. It's huge, it's monster, very expensive, huge licensing, very complicated to, to, to acquire. Uh, believe me, I know I did acquire it several times. Uh, but buried in this tool is a little baby thing called the decision table editor. And it is so good at modeling business logic for test design in de with decision tables. And I love that thing. But the thing is, IBM won't take it out and sell it by itself. <laughs> it's like, I'm sure every tester would be happy to pay 50 bucks to have that tool. <laughs> but because right now you have to buy $2,000 receipt licenses for your whole team, it's out of reach. So I, I, you know, I feel bad about it. It's a good tool, but it's buried in such a huge product, which not everybody needs. So these are the ironies of the, the sort of looking at tools and the, the way they're marketed. Because it's not because of the tech. The tool is technically excellent, but it's marketed in such a way that, like, you got to buy a lot of stuff that, you know, maybe you need, maybe you don't need. Maybe. Exactly. 
Thank you. I hope, Ganesh, uh, this answered your question. Okay, I, I guess so. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, Rob. Uh, so before I take another question from the audience right now, um, yeah. and not to promote, to prioritize my question, but I was thinking uh, about this. Uh, <clears throat> in software testing, uh, other than the tooling aspect, right, or the technology mm -hmm. aspect, uh, if we talk about practices or uh, methodologies, right, um, or even in, in software development, right? So let's say, let's talk about waterfall, right? I'm one of those person who have not exactly worked in waterfall methodology-based software development processes, right. right? So, and every process come and go or maybe stay. So for example, waterfall came and now it go, it, it, it went away. Now we are talking about Agile, Scrum, and all these things, right? Mm -hmm. From a Fed perspective and from a trend perspective, do you think, uh, would you like to say something about these processes, uh, development and testing processes, which could not cross the chasm, but were good, something like that? Do you think so? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate, as you know, right, of different strokes for different folks. And you've got to choose a method that fits your fits your problem space and fits fits your development. Uh, don't believe, by the way, that waterfall is gone. <laughs> waterfall is 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 uh, far from gone. Uh, it's it's in fact used in in mission critical software, in in government software. And if you look carefully at the software that's being used for satellite development and for rocketry and and outer space, like for example, Mars landers and stuff, it's following a pretty rigorous waterfall. So this is don't discount it but it's certainly not mainstream anymore it used to be mainstream and now it's mainstream. Not. agile also don't don't think it's a new kid on the block the the agile manifesto was signed in february of 2001 in utah so that's that's 22 years plus ago so it's not a new thing it's funny how the adaptation of it seems to be taking forever um i look deeply at the um the practices i do see some things that are are, are fads that come come in and uh, seem to get refactored and then leaving. For example, uh, I've heard, I don't know if you've heard of the term test ops. There's there's a sort of a, a fad that came in and it seemed to last a few months and now it's sort of quieted down. Mm -hmm. So you see coming in and out, you know, what, what looks like innovations that uh, don't stick. So it, it's quite true. You're, you're quite right to, to say that uh, software development lifecycle models, uh, follow different patterns of pads, of fads. Some of the fads, though, are are uh, if you look at Jeffrey Moore's model, are things to look at from that perspective. Like look at the safe agile, scalable agile. I don't know if you're familiar with SAFE. So safe is a commercial project product that's that's parachuted into companies to give them iterative incremental development models loosely based on combining a whole bunch of different Agile frameworks together. Uh, they claim it's uh, Agile. A lot of people in the Agile community claim it's not Agile. It's it's controversial in, in that way. Uh, but I see that coming in and I'm saying, aha, there's a certain market that really, really needs that and that, that are actually taking it and benefiting from it. And they're parachuting it onto a company and the whole company is changing to, to this so-called safe um, method. Now, I say it's not agile, it's not bottom up, it's parachuted top down, but it still gives you iterative incremental development and lots and lots of attributes that you get from doing, you know, Scrum or Kanban or, mm -hmm. or, or, or 
extreme programming or other uh, agile uh, methods. So, so I think that you you will see niche markets for these things, and it's gonna it's gonna be a certain type of company that wants to have homogenized process and and wants to sort of push it all down so that everybody's doing the same thing uh in in a large company and and i've seen that and I'm, i don't think we're ever going to stop that old one rational unified process was that if you're familiar with the history of these methods mm-hmm. fujitsu had a common process like that they basically parachuted in uh top down and it's basically marketed not to the market in general but to a very niche market. So you have only certain types of companies are they marketing it to. So they're not going to go to uh, a little high-tech development company in Silicon Valley and try to promote uh, scalable agile, but they will They will go to maybe a company that uh, makes golf clubs or or, or that uh, does seed generation or agricultural products or something. Something that's not a dominant software industry, but depends a lot on software. These parachuted in processes uh, fit in there, so it does fit fit the model, but it's uh, it's certainly not the type of stuff that I lose a lot of sleep over because this is highly specialized uh, people who, who who buy and benefit from it. It's not the market in general. Makes sense, right? Agree, agree. Thank you. Also, um, there's, but earlier, be careful though. If you get it uh, attached to one of those models, just be aware that that the way you're developing software in that model might not apply to a lot of other companies. Exactly. So You're right. Like, Absolutely. This used everywhere. Scale agile, not everywhere. But it's still good. I'm not judging it. It just it's not as universal. Understandable. Understandable. So, for example, just to give one uh, glimpse of it, you know, uh, I worked with Rational Unified Process. It was very successful in financial. I mean, the companies who build software for financial institutions, right? Yeah, so yeah. it was a blend of some waterfall. Mm-hmm some kind of scrum methods and some kind of incremental uh, initiative development. So it fit there. Right. Yep. Thank you. Uh, let me take next questions from yeah. insurance companies too. Yep. Uh, let me take next question from Sumalia. I hope I pronounced the name correctly. Uh, let me take this on the stage. Uh, so question from Sumalia is what are the key aspects, areas that you think a testing practice capability lead should focus keeping working on in order to maintain upgrade the coe i think it's 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 for center of excellence i guess uh, yeah. in terms of supporting various domains yeah so so this is um it's an interesting point uh, and i have to say out that i identify myself um, as a context-driven tester. So that's my self-identification. Just I want that on the table, first of all. But I mean, I teach and consult in the whole world, so I don't just go to, to context-driven uh, communities. However, I just want to say that's who I am. So, so when you hear my answer, it's got a bit of a bias that way. Uh, so I have, I have helped companies uh, disband things like COEs. So I've taken the COE and said, let's, let's tear it apart a bit and, and try to refactor it and, and change it a bit. And what I've learned, at least in my experience, is that the key factor there, I don't know if you could put the question up again, so just I don't miss sure, a point on sure. it. Sure, yep. Key factor for me is to build up, build up examples from real projects. So instead of trying to go look at the market outside of your company and say, here's a tool that's the best practice for this, and here's a tool that's the best practice for that, look within a bit and find examples of excellence 
And excellence would mean things like, here's a, here's how this tool helps solve this problem in our company. And take that <laughs> and capture the, 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 if there's code that was written, get the code, get the test, get the test cases, get the bug reports, get the information, get, get all the insights into why that was an excellent example. And then share that with, with your community of practice. So, so collect examples and then share them using, and I, I call this campfire tale. So it's not because it's fireside chat. I use it, uh, the model, the metaphor of a campfire tale, get people to share them. And the beautiful thing about that is then you not, not only focus on the explicit knowledge of how to, how to solve your problem, but also you get the tacit knowledge that, that gets expressed and shared. And that's for me, the, the wisdom of, of collecting the exemplars and getting people to share the story of it uh, around a campfire. And, and hopefully you're, you're collecting examples as they happen. And so if you have like scrum teams, do a scrum, a scrum. After every sprint, look for examples, hunt them down. When you find an example, grab it and share it with your community of practice and have the people involved in it do their campfire story. And, and you'll take examples that were uh, great successes, but also look for disgusting failures as well. It's it's not just to say, this is the best tool. It said, wait a sec, if you take this tool and use it in the wrong context, this could be the worst thing you ever did. So so that rather than the center of excellence where you go outside, uh, I believe in introspective a little bit to, to collect examples and case studies. If you're allowed, of course, you can collect them from outside too, but this is proprietary uh, information. It's very, very risky to try to share it. I don't want you to try to generalize this stuff to the point that we can use it and write a textbook about it. You just got to share it among your community of practice within your your company. Um, so that's sort of how I would uh, work on it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Somalia, I hope uh, this answers your question to a great extent. And let's uh, go to the next question now. Um, uh, I one second. Okay, so it's this is a question from Madhu S. Uh, she, it's senior QA, and let me show on the stage. I hope uh, you would like to answer this question. Uh, I find it is interesting. What are the steps or how to get work with initial innovators, and what's the difference between? working with initial and later technology after market segmentation. So if, if you can leave that, again, leave the question up just sure. for a few minutes. So when, when I'm, and, and I like the, the, the way you're, you're using now segmentation models to discuss it. So this is the number one reason I use the discussion, the model, so I can have this type of discussion. Now, um, innovators are tolerant of a lot of crap. They, they basically, I uh, don't mind if there's bugs or failings or problems. The biggest example I know in the history of modern computing happened in 2010 when Apple released the iPhone 4. And they released the iPhone 4, which did not allow voice communications on America's biggest telephone network of AT&T at the time. There was a huge bug in the product, but no one cared. Apple made order of magnitudes increase in gross profits. And people posted on YouTube videos showing off this beautiful bug that they found in the Apple iPhone 4. That was the iPhone 4. It was the technical failure of the year in 2010. And the in, in the early adopters, the innovators, they loved it. They loved it. They loved it. And they were maniacal about it. But of course, the late majority <laughs> 
would never be able to use that, right? The, the late majority needed voice to work on a phone, right? So what, where you have a friction here is the tolerance of the early adopters. They don't really care about things like, what if I change the version of Windows and my scripts don't work anymore? <laughs> that's not something the innovators and the early adopters care about. But that's the, the late majority cares a lot about that. Like if I have an update from Microsoft, I have to have my old test scripts still have to work. You know, like so th there's this sort of notion, what I call regression risks that that have to jump across that barrier. That's why it's hard to cross that barrier that, because mm. you get into this notion of regression risks. So how do you get to work with the initial, the difference between them is basically tolerance of, of regression risk primarily. And um, it's, it's not hard as long as there's a benefit for the technology and a support channel that's gonna keep, keep an eye on things like new versions of protocols, networks. I mean, if a new version of JSON comes up, they wanna they want be able to have a payload with it. If they have a, a, a new version of Kubernetes, they, they wanna be able to work with it. So, so you wanna basically, demonstrate that you, your tool can be updated as the world around it changes without having to rewrite all your old assets. And that's that to me is the big, big one. So if we're talking about difference, right, for the initial innovators and jumping to the to the to the um, the later group in market segmentation, I think mm -hmm. that's the big one. I think that one resonates with testers. I don't know if I missed part of the question, but I think that that's my sort of way to answer it. Yep, I, I guess you answered the question very well. Uh, Madhu, I hope uh, this answers your question. Uh, can you give a thumbs up? And if you have further question, please put on the Q&A section. We will be happy to answer. Great. Um, okay. Bharat mentioned center of examples instead of center of excellence. <laughs> okay, great. Nice. nice. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. So, I mean, let me show that stay on the stage. It's not a question, it's a comment. Center of examples instead of center of nice. excellence. Beautiful. Make a poster of that. That's good. <laughs> Thanks, Bharat, for, for saying that. Um, okay, so, Rob, uh, uh, the question with respect to crossing the chasm, I, I mean, from audience, uh, I'm waiting for some more questions. Uh, one question that came up, and I think uh, it is a good question in the context of, um, and I'm voting it one as well, because I think it's related with respect to the segmentation, the tester itself in the organization, and uh, the place of the tester in this wild world these days, right? So, so the question is could be very general. I mean, looks like so it says how to become the critical resource in the team things to do things to be followed and things to do okay well now you're now you're entering an interesting uh, level of discussion I, I don't want to get too abstract here but if you are using the term critical in the term terminology used by project management right uh, you don't ever want to be a critical. You don't want to be on the critical path of a project. Because if you are on the critical path of the project, that means that if you delay or you screw up something, the whole project gets delayed or the whole project gets screwed up. So actually, there is a whole school of thought of management saying you are successful if you avoid being on the critical path. 
and Ooh. the best projects I worked on that I was praised on, including the award-winning AVT 710, 10,000 units in the field, 15 years, zero field-reported software bugs in the whole life of the product. And I spent my whole time avoiding getting on the critical path of the project. So I, I want to caution you that if you are critical <laughs> to the project, that means that if you make a mistake, it gets amplified and hurts the whole project. So, so that's a cautionary note. But I'm thinking maybe you're using the term in a more casual <laughs> sense instead mm -hmm. of a project organizational sense. But just be careful because I don't want to generalize. So I want people to to care about my work and I want to contribute. I want to be I want to be successful contributor and I want to get some recognition for what I do at the end of the project. I want to be part of the success factors right on on the team. And I believe that in, in testing, if you just start. In testing, it's learning how to do technical collaboration with your peers in the team. I think that's that's the for me the number one uh, takeaway from my career is is just technically collaborate with others and most notably programmers. And I know that I don't want to diss the ISTQB or, or too much. I can diss them a little bit maybe, but when when I when I say diss, I mean like say something negative about them. But in this syllabus of the ISTQB, there's text in there that says testing is not debugging and testing is not troubleshooting. And so I'm going to tell you the two activities I think you should get involved in the most are debugging and troubleshooting. And it's like, is that testing? It's like, yes. And can my skills help? Yes. And programmers might not have the skills you have for bug isolation, uh, variability, combinations, permutations, te good test design, a good bug advocacy, all that stuff is testing skills that can help with troubleshooting and debugging. And the technical collaboration with the programmers make you a resource that they come to. Case study, Jason DeSimone, he started testing at 15 years old. He worked a part-time summer job, testing, testing, testing. Eventually, he, he got into a couple of teams that I was organizing. And the developers loved it to pieces. They they loved working with this guy. And I, I couldn't understand it. I thought they loved it because, you know what, he was a, a games guy. He liked hardware. I thought they had a technical connection. So I did a deep task analysis interview of how Jason uh, worked with developers. And I found out that it was bug isolation testing and bug confirmation testing that he did in collaboration with programmers that led them to have so much respect for him that they always wanted him to test their stuff. They wanted he wanted him to look at it. They wanted him to be involved. And this is Jason DeSimone. And it's a beautiful case. And I, I, I learned a lot about task analysis doing it, but um, he was he was just fantastic with talking to the developers about the problem space. He, he didn't pretend to be a programmer, but he learned how to work in the IDE with them, the, the, the development environment with them to do troubleshooting and debugging. And that made him someone who was, I think, a critical success factor mm -hmm. without being on the critical path of, of the project. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and Rob, uh, <clears throat> we just talked about the tolerance of the innovators, right? Uh, and I think there's a follow-up question from Ganesh. And I would like yeah. to bring that question on the stage. Um, and the question is, <laughs> is that tolerance sometimes can also be termed as ignorance and can hamper the tool adoption because it get the image that these guys don't get us? Yes, they, they might not get you. And there's definitely ignorance, but it's not unbounded ignorance. And it's not 
bad. Don't judge it. Ignorance is not something to judge here. Ignorance can work to your advantage. If you ever look at a racehorse, they put blinders on the horse so that it can only see ahead of it and it can't get distracted by what's going on on the side. So there is certainly a, a, a tunnel vision focus on the value proposition that early adapters seem to latch onto. So yes, it's ignorant. And when, you, when you're trying to uh, advocate testing, advocate testing to people with that sort of attitude, yeah, they're, they're going to see one path <laughs> and they're, they're going to they're miss other things. So the blinders do, do create a bit of tension uh, when, when you're trying to, um, for example, talk about testing in general. Uh, I, I think a, a good tester is worried about many different types of risks. You're worried about, you know, does the capability work? Uh, what if something breaks? Can users do their job? Does it work in the target environment? All sorts of non-functional stuff. You can come up with 20 test ideas in five minutes. And these guys, they only think of one. <laughs> but it's the one that they really, really, really care about. So I think that there is a, a notion, the skill to develop is called test advocacy. Or, or, or it's part of, I guess, bug advocacy, test advocacy. Uh, it's, it's certainly hard to do with people with this tunnel vision. I agree 100%. So, so it's, I don't want to judge it, though, because that ignorance is helping them get somewhere, right? And unfortunately, when I go to trade shows and conferences, I, I run into too much of it. <laughs> so it's there, and it does bother me. I'm not saying I like it. I, I, can, I can think I can understand it a bit, but I, I hate when someone thinks everything, like when I said it earlier, all testing is uh, all automation is not regression, and I look at these people and they're saying the testing is regression. Testing is regression. I said no, some testing is regression, and quite frankly, not all of it is, and not every test I make has to be reused. And I don't believe in putting tests in catalogs, and I don't believe in creating a manual test and automating afterwards. I, that's not how I practice testing. But some people have this tunnel vision, and that's the way that they they do it. That's one way to do it, maybe. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only way. But if they're tunnel vision on, you know, one specific tool, one specific method, and code, low, low code stuff, for example, today, is 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 just a demonstration of that. I mean, it's interesting. It's novel in some ways. I mean, it's not that I haven't seen it for the last thirty years, but it's novel in some ways. Uh, but what we're seeing here is now this notion of low code is suggesting, okay, maybe programming is tricky, so maybe we should use programming methods that are things that people can learn quickly, that's fine. But it doesn't mean there's no code. It doesn't mean that, that there's no thinking, right? It, it sort of means other things. And I, I would suggest that the um, the type of, uh, how can I put it, sort of framing is is just to avoid generalizing too much. Try, try to avoid generalizing. Mm -hmm. And the people who are generalizing, well, Point out where their value proposition is and don't let it leak out too much. Because I think if they believe like all testing is regression, then they're they're tri trivializing your job. And yeah, that's right. Exactly what you said. They don't get us. <laughs> they, they, they don't get that there's a lot more risks than that. Uh, I've seen ways to do to, to work with it is to sort of partition the work a little bit so that you, you don't claim to be doing uh, redundant work with this with um, a different approach. And that that's why I love a problem solving approach to testing where in testing, I'm saying, what question am I answering? And your tool is helping you answer one question. There's a whole bunch of other questions that I have other ways to answer. And your tool might not answer those other questions. Right, right. Makes sense. Thank you so much. They might be ignorant of these other questions, you know. Right, right. 
Um, there's another question from Madhu, and I think it's a follow-up question on on the the tolerance of of the innovators. And uh, you please interpret this question. Uh, I don't want to. Uh, so doesn't it mean that they? I think it, it's about innovators or the tool vendors who or technology developers who supply to the uh, to to the early adopters. I guess in that context. Well, uh, so doesn't it mean that they don't bother testers and testing stuff for innovators? So let's just let's just leave it on on the screen for okay. a second. Sure. Uh, so. Now, now my context hat is is bubbling and lights are flashing in my head all over the place. So there's at least four dimensions. There's there's the dimension of business. There's the dimension of technology. There's the dimension of organization. There's the dimension of culture. All four of those factors will drive what is a reasonable testing approach to a problem space. And so so the business factor here we're talking about. Uh, specifically is market segmentation by more. It's where are you in, in, in terms of market segmentation? That's a business context factor. But it doesn't take away the fact that there's technical factors, organizational factors, and cultural factors too that, that are going to drive what is reasonable for testing. Testing almost always has some sort of question that's being answered, and it almost always has, has two dimensions when, when you're deciding how to tackle the problem. One dimension, so once you have the question, one dimension is what's the depth and what is what's the scope? So scope, if you will, is what are the factors we have to consider and depth is how hard are we going to hit it? And with, with different contexts, you might have the exact same question that you're going to hit shallow with different depth. So in the case of the Apple iPhone, it's not that they don't bother testing it. It's that they figured, okay, we're not going to worry about these type of risks. We're going to do very shallow testing in terms of working on different telephone networks. And, and that, that's what they decided deliberately to do. They did some, but it was very shallow because they knew that even if it didn't work on the network, as long as VoIP worked, which is what the market segment wanted, they, they would still buy the product. So, so it's, it's a question of, um, it, it's a question of doing it testing deliberately <laughs> and, and considering your context factors to decide what the depth and scope of testing is. And I like to do that Myself, I like to do it very, very deliberately and conspicuously. So while I'm testing, I want my stakeholders to know, here's the question I'm trying to answer, and here's the depth and scope that we're going to be using so that they can see different questions I'm going to tackle with different depths and different scopes. End mm. of rant. I hope uh, this answers your question, uh, Madhu. And if you have a follow-up question, you feel free to ask. So, uh, Rob, uh, with all this conversation, and uh, because honestly, I'm not into, I mean, not this in this kind of thinking so far with respect to early adopt. Though I read about it, but it's more like uh, reading is one thing, and internalizing is another thing, and experience that is another thing, right? So, my question to you is. As a tester, uh, and you said there's a, you know, tools, there are a lot of tools, right? And different yep. tools solve different kinds of problems. And uh, as testers, do you think that some of us, or let's, let, let's speak to myself or as an experience, okay? And not to generalize the thing. Can I say that if a tester just focus on, let's say you talk about Selenium, for example, what mm -hmm. problem it solves versus I know Selenium. So how do you how do you say that different tools or multiple tools in the market, different problem to solve, 
and then one tester looking at all these tools, all these different problems. So how to make so, a, you know. A... Yeah, so this is exactly the question space that I've, I've been looking at hard. Uh, and I have a, a way that I like to answer it. Um, uh, and I, I think this is probably the best of many worlds. So instead of in your resume, when you're putting down your list of tools, right? Don't put down a list of tool and call it a skill. Instead, say, here's the problems that I've been able to solve <laughs> and put a description, what problem you solved with what tool. So you're still going to have the tool in your CV or your resume. So the HR department is still going to see it there. But instead of saying something abstract or silly, like I'm a novice or I'm an expert, say, I'm able to solve data integrity corruption testing with Selenium. I'm able to, to, to solve this tool with Python. I'm able to solve path analysis tools with path, whatever it is, with, with Catalan something. So you have a list of what are the problems you're able to solve, and then you can have two or three tools next to each one of them that you use to solve the problem. I think that to me is expressing um, how, how the tool fits into your, your experience and it's much more interesting for the people interviewing you to see what problems you've been able to solve as a tester, not necessarily what tools have you used. Although I know the hiring channel is there and they, they want to see that list of tools on the resume. So my, my solution is to sort of say, what problems did you solve? And then list, this is the problem we solved. And you might list them the two or three tools. And don't be afraid also to mention things like what the programming language, the, the code you were testing was, it was in and what was the IDE that was being used at the time. Uh, these are all tools that are part of the testing process. It's not just test automation tools. There's a lot of tools related to the work, dynamic static analysis, a whole bunch of them relate to your work. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rob, uh, on the follow-up of this question, you, I think you intend to talk about uh, the technologies to develop products, uh, technologies to test products, and uh, mm -hmm. use of the products under development. So would you like to you know, uh, bring some light, throw some light on these aspects? Um, well, <laughs> I guess I could talk a little bit about, um, for me, a couple of issues that come up. Uh, I had uh, some meetings just last week with a customer in California uh, about issues relating to uh, how I would test uh, an API that they would develop, a nice REST API that they came up with. They, they gave me a spec. At first glance, the spec looked really cool until I looked a little deeper and then I found that it was automatically generated by some of these uh, API spec generating tools. And I wasn't so impressed afterwards because I found that about 30% of the variables didn't have a type definition. How could a programmer give me a requirement spec for an API without telling me the type of the parameters? So I was, you know, at first glance, the tool looked useful, but then it's missing a lot of details. Mm -hmm. But what I did, I said, look, at, for, for, the, for this project, how I would tackle testing it, and uh, is first of all, I said, what is quality? And I knew what quality meant for them. So I expressed it. It had a lot to do with data integrity. So I expressed what quality meant for them. And then I basically talked about um, a way that I would tackle this particular testing problem. And the first thing I did was saying that for each endpoint in the API, for each endpoint, I would want to have a reconnaissance uh, charter. And the reconnaissance charter included interviewing the programmer and having the programmer walk through the code changes related to the, the stuff that was being implemented as well as the unit testing that was done. And the reason I'm doing this is not just to sort of understand the technical solution, which is important for identifying failure modes, but it's also 
to look at the 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 depth and scope of unit testing that was done to to avoid uh, obvious redundancies and i found that that was very very important to 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 to, to say hey we've got to look at the testing that's already been done and make sure that we're not just repeating exactly the same testing in another box. We've got to we've got to do something different. We've got to we've got to add value to the equation. Sure, there might be regression needs, but there's also other things to learn about. So that was basically to to put into each endpoint a charter, which I call a reconnaissance charter, to basically look and understand what are the factors that matter, and to to basically look at the code that was changed and to look at what what testing or what testing related work the programmer had already uh, done. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. With that, uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, I hope you learned something and you got to know about this uh, crossing the chasm. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Have a good time. Thank you.